God, this is a sobering and even scary text. So I pray this morning that your spirit would help us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who is caught in sin, anyone hiding in sin, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and that you would bring freedom. God, we are humbled by an awareness of our sin and its seriousness. And yet I'm thankful for this last verse, thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the one who defines us, the one who washed and sanctified and justified us. So God, speak through your word now to your people. Ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if any other families or even roommates have this problem, but my wife and I often struggle to find shows that we both like. I like The Mandalorian. She likes Flipper Flop. I like watching Tom Brady. She likes watching Joanna Gaines. But there is one show that we both have found that we enjoy. It's the show The Crown. It's based, as the title says, on Queen Elizabeth and her royal family. Now, part of what drives the storyline and the challenge for members in this royal family is that their life is not their own. Everything they do is reflective of the crown, meaning the family and the leadership over the British Commonwealth. Now, these family members, especially the queen and then anyone in line for the crown, they're set apart from the rest of society. Now, with this come great blessings, but also great responsibilities. They're held to a high standard and expected to live a life with a certain level of poise, nobility, and wisdom. Now, this is often challenging for the royal family members because they cannot live like everyone else. And when, in the show, when Prince Charles, when he acts in such a way that might bring dishonor upon the crown, the queen tells him, remember who you are. So the call to remember who he is is not just a reminder that he's a future king, but it's a calling to live like it, to live according to it, to not act out of step with the immense honor and privilege they have as being heir to the throne. Now, because of who they are, they're expected to live in a way that faithfully reflects the dignity of the crown. Well, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we notice something similar. We're told that believers are set apart in Christ. We're given given a unique status in relationship with God, but also the responsibility to reflect him in the world. We are called out of sin and called to the worthy name of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we forget this calling and what it entails. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we talked about church discipline. This week we're in chapter 6 and we're talking about suing one another. So you can consider this a two-week series leading up to Valentine's Day to warm your heart. Lots of love in 1 Corinthians. But what we see in this chapter is that Paul, here again, he's addressing another problem, another sin in the church. Rather than handling things like peacemakers, they're actually suing one another. And he's likely using this as one example to point out the bigger problems in the church, their selfishness their divisiveness, and the fact that they don't seem to care that their sin is a reflection on the church and on Jesus Christ. And so here Paul calls them to forsake their sin by reminding them who they are in Jesus Christ and tells them to live like it. And so that's the same message for us today from 1 Corinthians 6, to remember who you are in Jesus and to live it out. 
Well, this morning we'll divide our, section, our chapter into three sections. In verses 8, we'll consider Paul's rebuke for them suing one another. Then in verses 9 to 10, he warns them not to be deceived. And then in verse 11, thankful for verse 11, he exhorts, exhorts us to remember not only what we're saved from, but who we're saved to. We'll start first with the rebuke. Paul tells them to stop putting themselves above the name of Christ. Now notice Paul's tone in this chapter. Verse 1 can be translated as this. How dare you go to the law before the unrighteous rather than the saints? Now between the sexual immorality in this church, the division we've seen, and the selfishness, all things he's been addressing in chapters 2 to 6, you can tell he wants them to grasp how seriousness how serious their sin is. In this book, Paul doesn't lack grace, but he also doesn't minimize sin. There's a shock and offense to it, and he wants them to feel that in this chapter. Here's a quick summary of what seems to be happening there. There were Christians at Corinth that were suing one another, and it says in verse 7, to avoid personal loss. Notice it says in verse 2, these were trivial cases. In verse 5, these were disputes. And so it does not necessarily relate to crimes that were committed that they were pressing charges for. Instead, the passage seems to address Christians suing one another on matters that could have and should have been dealt within the church through mediation and counsel. An example today could be if one church member sold a house to another church member and there were some problems, there was fallout. Let's say they sold the house, they knew there was a leaky roof, And when the new member moves in, it rains, and they have problems, and they're out a couple thousand dollars. Now, ideally, those two members would come together, and they would resolve the problem. They'd want to make anything wrong right. Now, if nothing works, maybe it's worth, this is what Paul says, maybe it's worth you losing a couple thousand dollars so as not to drag the name of Christ through the mud through this publicly suing one another. And if it's not obvious, Paul gives three reasons why them suing one another is problematic. The first reason is in verses 2 and 3. Paul tells them that believers will one day rule and judge the world, which is a much bigger and more important task than handling these trivial matters. It's a common way in the New Testament of moving from the greater to the lesser. Paul doesn't elaborate on this judgment, but he says that saints will one day participate in future judgment. And he's saying, if you will do that, can't you handle these small matters among you? Second, in verses 4 to 6, Paul rebukes them for a lack of godly wisdom. Listen to his question in verse 5. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Paul's suggesting they should have wisdom to handle these matters. But it's also a rebuke because we know the church at Corinth, they were prideful. And the things they were prideful about were their wisdom, their intellect, and their giftedness. And so Paul's kind of throwing this in their face and saying, if you are so smart and mature like you claim to be, how can you not have enough wisdom to handle these matters? Well, then in verses 7 and 8, we see a third problem Paul has is that their actions actually reveal their unrighteousness. From the end of verse 8, it seems that some are using this court system for personal gain by wronging one another. Rather than handling things the way Christ has laid out, they choose the ways of the world. 
Rather than suffering a little loss personally, they're willing to bring shame and dishonor on the church and the name of Christ, if it leads to their gain. And so in these verses, verses 1 to 8, Paul rebukes them for wronging one another, for choosing sin, but also for how their actions dishonor the name of Jesus. And I think we can apply this today by feeling the weight of Paul's concern for how our actions, including our actions toward one another, how that bears a witness upon Jesus. And how when we sin, and when we sin against one another, that we tell people something false about Christ, that we bring shame on his name. And this can happen when Christians gossip about one another, when we're unkind or selfish, or when Christians simply can't agree on secondary issues and act angry toward one another. But one specific area I want us to be more aware of this is that it definitely can happen on social media. That when Christians argue, when they fight, when they seem angry, or when they show higher allegiances than Christ through their posts and comments, that does not represent Jesus well. And it's not that Christians can't have opinions, convictions, or that Christians can't disagree with one another, but that needs to be done well and in wisdom. And so when our online interactions seem arrogant, hostile, divisive, that says to the onlooking world that we lack wisdom, humility, and love. And so remember who we are, but also remember who we reflect and remember who is watching. Well, Paul now moves from a rebuke to an outright warning not to be deceived. Follow along again in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is suggesting that their behavior, it actually looks more like the sinful world than like Christ. And the key phrase I want you to notice here is the language of do not be deceived. Here Paul puts up a huge caution sign. You can even imagine when someone first read this letter to the church at Corinth that someone would have been uncomfortable. Because what Paul is saying is just because you believe general truths about God or Jesus, just because you're in or around the church, just because you might align yourself with Christianity, if you are walking in unrepentant sin, then you have no ground underneath you to stand on. He's saying if you are living in sin that you're not actively trying to fight, then something is not right. You cannot follow Jesus while rejecting him to pursue the things that he calls sin. And this should be scary to us. This should cause us an awakening to the seriousness of our own sin. It should cause us to ask, is there any hidden sin? Is there any ongoing sin in my life that does not reflect the life we have in Christ. I think this also raises a couple practical questions I want to try to answer quickly. First, is Paul saying that believers never sin? And if we do sin, what's the difference then between a believer who sins and an unbeliever living in sin? Well, in our series we did a few months ago on 1 John, we looked at these verses that teach us that believers will sin. 
1 John 1, 8 and 10 says, If we say we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. And so we're told that believers will continue to sin, but that believers confess their sin. They don't live comfortably in it. Well, this takes us to a second question. So what is the difference then between a believer who continues to sin versus the unbeliever who's described as living in sin? Well, a couple of chapters later in 1 John 3, you could read all of 1 John 3, but I'm going to stick with verses 6 to 8. He says this, No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, same language here, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so the Bible here, I think, makes room for the difference between a believer who commits sin versus the unbeliever who lives in unrepentant sin. A person who keeps on sinning or makes a practice of sin but isn't trying to fight it, it describes as an unbeliever. But for believers, though we sin, we cannot be comfortable in that sin or stay in it indefinitely. Like a spur in the shoe, the Spirit will keep us feeling that something is off, something is not right. Karen Jobes writes, The Christian may sin, but if they are truly of God, they will agree with him that their sin is sin, will confess it, and turn from it. They will become what they are. This is quite different from those who refuse to define sin as God defines it, who rationalize their behavior as not being sin, or who otherwise defy God's authority in their lives. Let me give an example of what this could look like. So a believer can still struggle with anger throughout their entire life. Or for me, I call it frustration, so I don't feel so guilty. Now, I might never conquer this sin completely, but I should always recognize that my anger is sin. I should still be confessing it and repenting of it. I should have a dissatisfaction for when anger is in my life. Now, there might be seasons where it's a bigger struggle than other times, and there might be seasons where I see more failure than success, but over the course of my life, I should see some progress when it comes to my fight against anger. Again, progress, not perfection. And this is an example of how a believer might continue to wrestle with sin, even a specific sin their whole life, and yet they're not described as a person who practices sin because they're still fighting it, they're still seeking to repent of it, and they do not want that to be a part of their life. But if I never feel conviction for my anger, if I don't see it as a problem, even though it's a problem in God's eyes, if I don't want to be free from it or don't want to fight it, then that's what Paul and John are describing as living in sin. And what Paul says is those who make a practice of sin or live in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they have no reason to think they are believers who will live with God forever because their actions demonstrate a heart that has never been changed. And so before going any further, answer these questions for yourself. Do you relate 
to your sin like a believer or an unbeliever? Are you fighting your sin or are you comfortable with it? And then second, is there any sin that you are hiding? Any ongoing sin that you need to come clean on today? If there is sin that you're keeping around and you're playing games with, my encouragement is to run from your sin and run to Jesus. Don't hide it. Don't wait another Sunday or another day. Don't try to manage it or fix it on your own, but come to Jesus. Maybe you've been around the church and you've assumed that you were a Christian, but as you hear this, you realize you might be part of this group that's called deceived. Yeah, you wanted some of the blessings of Jesus, but you wanted your sin. And so you were never willing to give up your sin to really have Jesus. And so what Paul does is he not only warns you, turn from your sin, but he also invites you to come to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who provides the forgiveness and the cleansing that you desire. That there is no sin so dirty or so shocking that Jesus cannot cleanse you. That the depths of your sin might be great, but the depths of God's love and mercy are even greater. And so turn to Jesus. Believe in him today. Or maybe you're here today and you are a believer, but you sense that God is convicting you about that sin that you have not dealt with. He's cautioning you that you are on dangerous ground and your life is not matching up with what it means to be in Christ. And today he's telling you it's time to stop playing games with your sin. It's time to stop playing games with the things that actually keep you from flourishing in Christ. And so for you today, as a believer, it's the same message. To flee from your sin and flee to Jesus today. That Jesus can alone cleanse you and restore you. But also the good news that Jesus can and does set us free. So Paul begins with this rebuke and then this warning not to be deceived. But then he moves to this exhortation. A little bit of hope and light in verse 11. Paul says this. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Stephen Um summarizes this passage by saying, ultimately, the Corinthians are conducting themselves as though their God-given identity is of no importance. They are forgetting the gospel. They are failing to be what they are. They are saints, but they are acting like non-saints. They are righteous, but they are living as though they were unrighteous. The result is that their community, the church, which is to be a present glimpse of the future community that God intends for the world, has nothing to offer. They have no means of displaying the way a gospel shapes a community. And so what Paul tells us, Paul says is that you are not the old, sinful, worldly you, so don't act like that person. He says, you are a whole new you, a person washed, forgiven, and loved by God. He tells us to remember who you are, remember whose you are, and to live that out. And hear this, we're not told to become something we're not. We're not told to turn our own lives around or to clean ourselves up. We're told to remember who we are in Christ and then to just walk accordingly. To live out the new status, the new identity, and this new relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. This is what I talked about at the beginning with the example of the royal family and having to remember who they are 
and to live in light of it. But we also use this kind of language or we live this way in day-to-day life. My daughter, Lily, she's now four years old, which is hard to believe. And now that she's older and a big sister, we remind her that new responsibilities come with her age and her role. She's not a baby anymore, so we expect her now to do things like wash her own hands, to put away the toys, and to mow the grass this spring. (laughs) Seems reasonable to me. We also remind her that now she's a big sister, which means she gets to teach Wyatt some things. She gets to be a good example, and she also gets to help us by throwing away dirty diapers, all things that come with her new role. Because of who she is, a big girl and a big sister, we want her to live accordingly. And that's how verse 11 functions for us as believers. Paul tells us who we are in Christ, and he says, now live this out as those who are washed, sanctified, and justified. Let me take a minute to quickly explain what each of those words mean. Notice that each of them are in the past tense. These are things that have happened. They're not things that will happen or are happening now, but they've already taken place when we were united to Christ. They're also passive, which means that God has done these works for us or in us. First word in verse 11 is that we are washed. Washed refers to the spiritual cleansing we have from guilt, from shame, from sin and corruption. Through the blood of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit who makes us new. And part of what I think is great here, between the the sins listed in verses 9 and 10 and this good news in verse 11, is that there is no sin or sinner that isn't washable. Any sin is dangerous and damning, but no sin is beyond his grace. And when Jesus cleanses us, when he washes us, he makes us fully clean. It's not like when I wash those drawings off my daughter's erase board and there's still some stains and smudges. But when Jesus washes us in his blood, he makes us completely, fully, and forever clean, washed as white as pure snow. We are washed in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it says that we are sanctified. Sanctified here refers to the fact that we now belong to God as his holy people. We have been set apart from the world and set apart to God. We belong to him. Now, this might be confusing in the church because sometimes we use language of the doctrine of sanctification, and by that we refer to progressive sanctification, meaning that over the course of a Christian's life, there should be some growth, some progress in maturity and holiness. But... When the New Testament, when it uses the word sanctified and sanctification, it usually does not refer to that progressive growth, but to our new status, our new identity. And this is what is called positional sanctification or definitive sanctification. The idea here isn't talking about our future growth, but it's telling us that in Jesus Christ, there is a real break from sin, and we are now set apart to God and belong to him. Here are a couple of examples from 1 Corinthians, verses we've already read. And this is how Paul actually starts his letter. He wants them to know who they are. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. And then verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 
Those are all things that have happened when we believed in Jesus Christ and were united to him. At conversion, it tells us that when we die to our old self, we are raised up with Jesus. That we are brought out of the world and brought into the kingdom and the family of God. So this language of sanctification, it's God's language to say, you are mine. You are my treasured possession that I've brought into my family. And so when the New Testament uses this positional sanctification language, it uses it to motivate us to actually live that out in day-to-day life. We're told who we are, you are sanctified and washed, so that we then live that out. We live like people who are washed and sanctified. Because we are in the family of God, we're told to look and act like our Father. So we are washed, we are sanctified, and then third, we are told that we are justified. Our sins are paid for, our guilt is removed, and we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And on that basis, we are declared righteous. And this justification, it's more than the sentence that says you're not guilty, though that's part of it, but it's actually that you are approved, that you are justified, that you are accepted and loved. Justification means that God's smile is now upon us forever. So all three of these, having been washed, sanctified, and been justified, they refer to God's gracious work that he does for us that we receive freely by faith. Or as verse 11 says, they happen in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. John Piper says, this is the heart of biblical Christianity. Such were some of you. He says, there were Christians in the church at Corinth that everybody knew had been fornicators. Everybody knew they were adulterers, and everybody knew they had been practicing homosexuals. They knew it. Paul knew it, and Paul's not even there. But they were not driven away. They were folded in And the way they were folded in, it says, is they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they heard the gospel, they turned to the Lord Jesus, they turned away from those practices, and they held on to Jesus and were by faith united to him. And if you are in Christ, this is your story. And this is a great summary of the Christian faith, that we are a sinful, flawed, broken people, And we put no hope in our own works. We put all of our hope and our trust on the perfect work of Jesus. That our faith is in a crucified and risen Savior who provides the things we need. Washing, sanctification, and justification. So we're told here that we are not who we one day will be, and yet we are not who we used to be. He says, such were some of you, but now You are in Christ, sanctified, washed, justified. All of this is God's grace and Christ's accomplishment. And so because of that, Paul's calling in this chapter is to flee our sin and to walk in Jesus Christ. I want to close our time by considering two ways that we can remember who Jesus is and live that out. The first is to remember, but also to rejoice in the fact that Christ has redeemed you. My encouragement is to never get over your salvation, not to get over the good news of the gospel. Don't ever lose gratitude for and joy in the fact that God not only saved you from sin, but he saved you to himself. 
that he not only got rid of your alienation and the hostility, but he brings you into his family. He offers you newness of life. He takes the shame, he takes the guilt, he wipes it away, and he clothes you with righteousness and with love. You now belong to God. You are his beloved son or daughter, and he is the one who is taking care of you. And so celebrate this and give thanks for it. Remember and rejoice always in what Christ has done for you. And then the second thing is to remember who you are now in Christ and to walk in him. The key word there is in Christ. This means that Jesus, not Dustin, should direct how I live. We're called to live out of the overflow of our identity in Christ, not the overflow of my personality, my opinions, desires, struggles, or my priorities. You'll hear this in a lot of movies, books, or in environments today, that you should just be who you are. But what if by nature who you are is broken, confused, selfish, or foolish? What if who you are changes Or if you're not in a good place and God, your maker, has different plans for who you should be. Well, the Bible is telling us that who we are as Christians is first and foremost defined by who we are in Jesus Christ. That means that I might be sarcastic or angry by nature, but in Christ, who I am, I'm called to put that sin to death. I don't just say that's who I am, but I say, no, who am I now in Jesus? Jesus. So what defines me then? It's not my personality. It's not my Enneagram type. It's not those temptations. It's not my failures. It's not my habits or my ones. What defines me as a believer is that I have this new status, this new position in Jesus Christ. And so the calling for us, this requires daily, moment by moment, that we confront our sinful patterns and temptations that we preach to ourselves and we get in the face of our sin and say, no, that's not who I am anymore. Yeah, that's tempting, but God has better plans for me. That will not lead me to Jesus or help me reflect Jesus, but it will lead me away from Jesus. And so Paul tells us today, remember that God has called you to himself, that he has set you apart in Christ, that he has given you his Holy Spirit, and that he has raised you up to this privilege of being the sons and the daughters of God, who not only know him, but also get the chance to reflect him in this world. He says, you are not who you used to be. Remember who you now are in Christ, and then live accordingly, today, tomorrow, and this week. Would you close in prayer with me? God, again, I know this is a sobering text, but I pray that you would help us to take sin as seriously as you do. Lord, I pray that you would lead anyone hiding in sin into freedom by confessing it and turning from it. God, I pray for even little sins that you would help us to take those seriously, that we would see them as dangerous and not keep them around. And God, most of all, we're thankful for Jesus Christ that even those sins of the past and the sins that nag us today are not what define us, but that in Jesus Christ, I am sanctified, I am washed, and I am justified. So we thank you for these truths. We ask that you help us live this out this week, and we know that we can only do that in your power and not our own. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.